This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them to succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we are talking to Scott Collins, PESE Principal at Collins Structural Consulting's PLLC about first and second responding structural engineers and some of the large-scale disaster projects he has worked on. I'm your co-host, Matt Cardle. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week with Scott. Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the PE structural exam. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the PE structural exam the first time. PPI's PE structural course is fully updated and taught with October 2021 code references and includes new editions of their PE structural books. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the resources available for PE structural exam prep. Now let's dive into today's episode. Scott, first, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on. So in your own words, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the type of work that you do? I'm a structural engineer. I graduated in 1999 from UNC Charlotte. I have moved around and worked in big firms, little firms from 125-person structural engineering firms to AE firms, architectural engineering firms to three-person firms. I own my own firm, started in 2009 after the great pop and had clients that wanted to work for me and started the business because that or find another career path. As progressed through my company in 2011, Raleigh got hit with a bunch of tornadoes and I got called in to start doing post-disaster work. Post-disaster work led into a little side venture that I do on my own, which is I'm uh, one of probably two, 300 structural engineers that are first response. So I am a STS2. I work with the North Carolina Emergency Management on the state level. There are people working on the federal levels and city levels in the world. Scott, could you talk about that a little more for particularly the structural engineers and even the students that don't really know what first and second responders are and what's the difference uh, between that and what do they do? There's three stages in a disaster. The first stage is human life issues. We're working at recovering people, mostly. To do that, that's dealing with usually firefighters make up most of the teams. But on a federal level and a state level, we have different classification teams, but at least two engineers are assigned with an 80-person team. And they go downrange. In fact, we usually get 
positioned prior to the storm or event happening if it's an earth, like a tornado. If it's an earthquake, it's obviously always after the fact. But if we know the event's coming, we'll stage prior downrange, hopefully just outside the event so that as soon as the event crosses, we can get right into it. Secondary responders is about the buildings. How do we get the people back into their structures safely? What's needed to get in there? And then the third one is releasing those structures to get repaired and it becomes a recovery stage. My firm does probably a third of its work in the recovery world, but we also do secondary responders and first responders. At least I do the first responder section. It's interesting, but unfortunate that, you know, we do have quite a few natural disasters that happen all across the United States, Canada, and the world. Is that to become a first responder? Is that something that like you get sourced out to do? I know um, like ASCE has something where they have almost like a first responder roster or something like that. Yeah, the SCA has a uh, secondary responders. It's called the SEER program. SEER program is like looking for engineers, EIs even, to get volunteer, to get some training. There's a, an all-day course, it's now web-based or online, that uh, allows an engineer to go in with the building departments to determine if the building is habitable or not, and that's the second level of the vents. So it's usually deemed safe enough to get into the area. You're not rescuing people. Any fatalities have been retrieved and recovered, so you're going in there to evaluate just the buildings. Is this building okay? Can I have someone live in this? And you give it a stoplight. You give it a a red, don't go in it. Yellow, someone needs to come back and evaluate this a little more. And a green, it's fine. Go ahead and live in it, occupy it, use it. So that's the SEER program. And like I said, it's a great program. So that's easy for everyone to get into. And you can start early on and young because what they'll do is they'll give you different levels. And as a younger engineer, you get paired with a more senior engineer to go out there and survey it. You get about 20 minutes per building trying to figure out if it's habitable or not trying to cover a large area then. I find your job very interesting, obviously. <laughs> but I've lived in places where we've had floods, and then I've also lived in places where they've had tornadoes. So I've heard about the first, second, and third, but never really knew how to get involved. But can you talk to us a little bit about some of the large-scale disaster projects that you've worked on and really what that entailed for you? On the first responder level, I started just working with the state level at, in 2015. So our state is unique in the fact that we have 15 engineers tied with the North Carolina Emergency Management that allows us to be deployed. In fact, we're actually self-deployable. So we can respond from a small incident where we're like teaming up with a local fire department to a large-scale incident. So some of the large-scale incidents is like Florence in 2018 that came into North Carolina I was tasked with the North Carolina Task Force 8, and as we crossed into Laurenburg, it became an island. It was unpassable. We got onto this area of land that literally became 20 feet of water deep all the way around the whole general area. So during the event, our first initial distance was, okay, we need to put 80 people somewhere in this area. What's the best building to do it? So we're evaluating you know, schools. We're trying to say, okay, well, can we stay in this school? Can we stay in this church? Well, this church is higher. And we're like, okay, this church is great, except for let's not put anybody by this big giant glass fall of windows. So in case something breaks, we don't want all the glass to come in on people. So we are giving advice to the commander or incident commander about where we wanted to, how the building should be used for riding out a hurricane. So in this case, we actually got right 
in the path, we got right over the eye. So we got a nice palm spell and right back to the wind. Our swift water teams hit the ground and they started going out in boats right away. The structural specialists were like, okay, we're going to be setting up camp. We're helping out the firefighters. We're cooking meals. We're, we're doing whatever we can to help everybody else out because our expertise wasn't needed at the initial onset. In Florence, we were sitting there, Klaus and I, the other engineer, were sitting there going, okay, we're trying to help out. And then all of a sudden we get told, you're going to go look at dams. And we're like, uh, okay, we can look at dams. We're probably know more about a dam than anybody else on this side of the water. And they're like, well, the Army Corps guys can't get here, so you're it. So we went out to look at the first dam. It's like, okay, well, first dam, we got a couple feet of water to breaching this one, so it's fine. We went to the second one, we're looking at that one. Had to go ride a John Deere tractor because the water was so high to get to it. We get there, and we're like, okay, well, yeah, all this water fits in that lower dam. So it's breaching, it's failing, it's going to break. But unless there's a reason we need to do it, there's no one in the way of it. So we're just going to say, let it go. So we gave our evaluations. The North Carolina management people said, okay, this is what you're doing, and told us to evacuate the dam and let it go. So we did. I helped quarterback Dorian as it came in in 2019. So I was communicating with all the other engineers that were out in the storm as they were going wide area searches. They were riding helicopters. They were doing you know bird's eye views on the damage. I went to Williamston, North Carolina to look at a small incident where a building was collapsed. And they didn't think anybody was in it, but they wanted to make sure the building was, you know, how bad of a damage was it going to be? And it wasn't going to fall into the road or damage other people's properties because it was downtown. And I actually just got finished with a, a large scale exercise with the uh, Army 9-11 group, which their first responders two weeks ago, which was a 24 hour operation, three day event where they were breaching concrete and crawling through tunnels and dealing with shoring and dealing with lifting 800, 900 pound blocks of concrete off of dummies that were supposedly trapped by debris. So we are getting involved with, you know, lifting plans and tunneling and coring and shoring. So it was a little more involved and fun, I guess, in a lot of ways. What's your procedure or, so you're a first responder, I guess, how do you learn that? What's your mindset and what's your process when you're going into these things? Well, we do first responding. There's actually two week or two one week training courses in California. We actually have to fly out to San Francisco. And the first week is kind of like, it's a mixture of firefighters, army guys, and engineers. So it's a little bit more like structures one-on-one going from what is a center of mass? How do you rig something to what a shoring is and what a shoring does? The next one is STS-2 and it's more of a, okay, here's a mock-up. Here's a rubble pile where we have debris that you actually crawl through and try to figure out how much this weighs. How do you shore this? How do you map out the tunnels that you're making into the structure? So it's a little bit, a lot more hands-on in that. And it's definitely only for PEs on that level. So in STS-2, you have to have a PE. You have to have at least five years experience. And you kind of want to be, you know, you're going to want to be a little bit of a nut to want to go into a collapsed building because the mindset on level one isn't, is this building safe to go into? It's like, no, it's a disaster. It's not safe to go into. What is the safest way to get you and your team into the building? And by the way, you have 25 seconds to figure that out. Or you get to walk around the building and then tell us which way we're going in the building. You don't get a, let me break out a finite element model to determine which the best stress points to crack this nut. It's, this looks like the best place you know, based on past experiences, past holes and stuff like that. So firefighters and, and the army people know how to make holes in concrete. You're there to tell them where to make the holes in concrete. So it's a, definitely 
a different mindset from sitting here at the office comfortably designing a nice, you know, brand new eight-story concrete structure or stuff. I heard some talks where I think during the fires, there was a first responder that was uh, an engineer too. And uh, kind of like his procedure. Yeah, it was it was uh, on-the-spot decision-making, forensics. And uh, there was like one instance where it was, okay, that's old, unreinforced masonry building. It was a tall wall, it was collapsed, no diaphragm, and there's heavy winds. You got to make the call. It's things like that. It's a next level engineering or that's really important because yeah that's when it's most important to help out yeah one of the side stories one of our older sts's was on reinforced masonry building with wood interior it was on fire and as he was doing a 360 walk around to figure out what's the best best way to get into it to start you know help the firefighters out he comes across a couple guys smoking next to a, a white van really close to a ball and he looked at the wall and looked and said okay it's no interior floors anymore Hey guys, that's not a great place to be standing. If that building falls, that brick can land on you. So why don't you go smoke over by the tree? And you're like, okay, kind of sound like they weren't going to listen to him. So he goes or picks the corner. All of a sudden, boom, loud thing. He feels vibrations. He runs around the corner and sees that wall just fell and that van's crushed. And he's looking at, oh my God, I got to call other people to get these firefighters out. They're right here. And he hears the voices going, damn, that wall fell fast. And he turned around and said, you listened. <laughs> So he's like, okay, my job's done. But he was like, this is so relieved. It's like, you listened. Yes, you said not to be there. We didn't be there. That's one of his stories. He's like, look, sometimes you say stuff and it's easy to say that quickly. And the firefighters actually have learned, at least in our area, that the engineers are there to protect them. And we're not out for egos. We're not trying to be the guy who knocks down the door. We're there to say, look, you're going in. Got it. This is the best way to go in. And they can start listening to you when you do that. So they realize that you're there to protect them. And so when you go in together, they're like, look, you've not been in this situation inside with the building falling around your ears, but you know to look out. For, I know to look out for them and they know to look out for me. So we, as a team, we kind of try to do the best we can quickly. And when we try to make decisions like, okay, is that going to be a five minute rescue? Then let's go get it, get it done and get out of there. If it's going to be, you know, I got to pull two levels of concrete off to get that person out. I got to short. We got to start looking at long-term instances. Do we have hanging debris? Do we have shifting capabilities? Are we going to have, just because the building is not moving, does that mean it's stable? Because you have a pile of rubble and you have an aftershock. Well, that rubble becomes marbles and that floor plate that's leaning at a 45 may become a, a rolling disc and becomes flat and you could crush a whole bunch of people. So like, you know, we got to shore, you know, if we got to get somebody out, it may be a shoring requirement. How much shoring, how, what type of shoring? So that's where we start to shine. Is figuring out, you know, what's our duration of it. And then when it becomes really bad and you're like, realize that it's going from a rescue to recovery position, you're looking at, okay, we're now not trying to save somebody. We're not trying to put people at risk. Let's slow down and do it, get them out, you know, recover safely. So the emphasis switches from recklessness safely to safely with a little bit of recklessness. The risk to reward benefits changes our perspective and the roles that engineers and firefighters play on a site quickly. Yeah. And I think it's really important to just kind of emphasize your work done with firefighters. I know it's like such an important part, especially in the first responding phase, because I remember there was um, a situation in Houston, which I am lived in Houston before I lived in Dallas. And there was a story that I was talking to an engineer about, and it was like a collapse due to fire of uh, in 2013. And the responding engineer, like, essentially caught the failure. Unfortunately, there did some people did get trapped. So there was unfortunately loss of life. But 
I remember there was like a huge discussion following about, you know, the work that the structural engineers do specifically for the first responding piece to help. Obviously, the goal is to help to prevent something like that happening. Your firm covers essentially all phases. So you cover first responding, second responding, and then what it sounds like, essentially the repair work that comes about whenever you have a disaster. Can you talk to us about like how you would assess fire damage structures? Because those I think are the most insidious because fire changes like the composition of materials significantly than what originally was designed. What is called out for you as an STS? When we're doing the repair work, it's usually not with an S, uh, first responder world. So we, we're basically become engineers. And as we're doing that, we're like, okay, how close do I need to get to evaluate stuff? So we do a little bit more of, you know, let's stand back. I don't need to be at that edge. I don't need to be tunneling through it. As far as fires, yeah, you have, especially wood fires, you go from a charred level. Well, you look at the building code and your char ratings. And it's like, look, if I burn it for an hour, it's, I got two inches left of my, but if you have a two by four, your two inches is nothing. You're sometimes going into a building and going, yeah, I'm not sure how it's standing. It should have been on the ground because my load bearing wall is gone and your trusses are all melted and your deck's doing something funky. And you're like going, okay, it's standing. I'm not going to go stand on the second level. I'm going to walk from the outside. I have a nice camera lens. I can zoom in to take pictures. And then we start evaluating, okay, all that comes out. We kind of joke, we get existing drawings, one in 10 buildings. So as we get to a site and we ask the question, do you have an existing buildings? And they're all like, no. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of the standard answer is no. You know, when you get a, get three of them in a row, you're like, great. Next year, I've got no building drawings at all. You're dealing with, you know, load bearing walls that are gone. It's sometimes the funnier ones are just stuff that you wouldn't expect, like a car coming through the building of a fast food joint. The load bearing wall's gone. The bar, the roof trusses are just hanging there by the deck. And then I show up on site and the building inspector standing on the roof going, can you believe it's still standing? And you're like, yeah, I can believe it. But why are you standing on it? There's quite a bit of live load on here. Yeah, it's doing some type of funky tension and you're trusting nails and a contractor who did this building 20 years ago standing on it. It's like, that's not the best plan. So as we're doing the, this repair work, we're coming at this with, I don't need to be on that roof. I need to be doing the repairs from back here. If there was a reason the first responder world, I need to be on the roof, then we'll have a different conversation. So our level, again, as that reward goes back from risk to reward benefits, becomes like, I don't need to be there. Uh, we've crawled through you know, buildings, knocked out glass to, to finish crawling through buildings to see how the damage is. There's been in buildings I'm sitting there going, this shouldn't have stand to begin with. I don't know how it's, we're trying to track the load path and it's a cantilever on a cantilever on a cantilever. And you're like going, okay, somehow the load path worked and they built it, but I'm not sure how. You get some of those projects and you're just trying to put it back as best you can and, and dealing with that. We actually had a job in Fort Myers that we haven't heard how it went because we were putting it back after a damaged storm recently as I Ian came in. So it may not be a building at all because it may be finished coming down because it was half built or half completed. We have to check in with our client down there still. I haven't heard from them yet. And I have a quick question about that. You know, you mentioned getting it back to the original design. So, you know, obviously certain buildings, you know, let's say it was built in the 1960s that has sort of a disaster happen to it. If there's a disaster, do you have to update the entire building, let's say to a new code, or is it just the renovation? 
Do you just analyze the damaged part or do you look at the entire structure? What does that look like? So each state has their own series of codes, as we're all pretty much aware of these days. But the um, North Carolina has adopted the existing building code. Georgia has as well. You know, Florida has, Alabama has, Virginia has. So they've adopted different sections of the codes. But the big kicker to this is in the existing building code, they have a assessment that you do. It says if you're less than 50% of the tax value of the property, you don't have to do anything but repair it, especially if it's not a windborne. So a fire disaster. You just got to put it back the way it was. You don't have to meet the new codes as long as it's less than 50% of the value of the property. So obviously, if it's a big building, it's a small fire, you're just putting back what needs to go back. If it's a building that had a big fire, you may be now assessing it, but all you're now assessing it to put it back to meet current lateral or gravity codes, and you're not dealing with lateral. Once you exceed the 50% rule, you're now kicking into... You know, the building departments can say, okay, are you in the floodplain? Are you in the wind zones? Are you in the seismic zones? And then they start going, okay, more damage you're building. If you're damaged due to wind, you're going to bring it up to new wind. If you're damaged due to seismic, you're bringing it up to new seismic. If you're in a floodplain, you're bringing it up to floodplain requirements. So sometimes you're looking at these buildings and you're like, okay, I am in the floodplain. The building's damaged. I have to bring it up to flood requirements. And you're like, I can do certain things like bring the mechanical units up as with our MEP teams. We build little platforms to set mechanical units on. We can say, okay, well, we got to you know, create walls that can flood away on a building now, or walls or access points for water to come and go. So you're dealing with a little bit more complications the more you go damaged by events. It is kind of like a gradation in the building codes on it. I know for those of you that are listening on podcast, uh, Scott has a picture in his background that shows a uh, buildings looks like it was ravaged by a tornado or some disaster. Could you talk a little bit about that? I know we talked about it offline a bit, but uh curious about that one. The picture is the pretty much the day after a EF4 tornado hit Henryville school. It was a high it was an all school. It was a middle school, high school and elementary school. And uh EF4, which was about 190 mile an hour winds, hit it directly on the one side. So we have school videos, but the way this job went, it was a definitely a recovery section. It was not a first responder. The uh, first responder teams out of uh, Kentucky had already responded to it and searched the school. Luckily, nobody was hurt in the school, believe it or not. The principal had enough warning to get every kid on buses and got out of there. They put three per seat and just told the bus drivers to drive. They didn't pay attention to what kid was on what bus. And so it took them eight hours to get all the kids home because they didn't know where the kids, you know, which bus the kid was on. So the parents were trying to figure out, you know, where the kids were and what bus. But the uh, few teachers that were in it were in the right spots. So no, they weren't hurt. Wide flange beams, like a 36-inch wide flange beam was thrown probably 800 feet, you know, 60 feet long. And it went through the gym. You know, so we were dealing with a 200,000 square foot school, varying from nothing gone to bent bar joist in the roof to walls collapse to doors being blown open. We got there. Storm happened on a Friday. We got on site that Wednesday after the storm at accelerated pace because the contractor we worked with said, we're doing this by getting this back open for school year. So we found every drawing they building had sat overnight, drew it up. And then Friday morning, week after the storm, we dropped off a set of demo plans to the contractor says, take all this out. We'll be back with real drawings later. At an accelerated rate, five weeks after the storm, we had 
plans approved by the state to build back the school for the structures. The architects was two weeks behind us and MEPs were about five weeks behind that because the school's like, well, since we got time, we need to look at new boilers and solar panels and new wiring. So they were upgrading the MEP systems as we were putting the building back together. In a mad dash, I mean, we're, I don't, at the time, I think they were stealing bar joists from other jobs. They were like, okay, we're putting this back. We're going to go grab this bar joist. It works. Can we do a bigger size bar joist? And we're like, yeah, we can do a bigger size. So it was a, I think it was $65 million. It was a 24-7 operation build back. They had three project managers running lights. They had every meal catered on the site. So you didn't leave the site for when you got the site for your shift. And five months later, that school was turned over for the kids to be open in school. As a side note, we actually did the temporary school for them as they finished out the school year. Lady Antebellum played their senior prom for you know fundraiser. So it was big disaster or big event. So the community really got together for that one. Yeah, I think that's something that structural engineers may not get to experience too often because, you know, they're probably stuck in the office and doing their calcs. But from your stories, you're actually going out there, you're seeing the people who's, you know, this affected. And I think you get to actually see the importance of, you know, what structural engineers do and what they can do to help the community instead of just numbers. It's the community and the importance of that. There's got to be different skills from communication skills, I imagine. they. What type of skills, like doing this type of responder work, I imagine you have to have great communication skills. Uh, you can't just be the engineer and just be like beams, columns, etc. I think you got to have some empathy on what people are going through during these times in the communication. You got to recognize that, you know, as the engineer, you're, we kind of joke, search and rescue dogs are ahead of us in the org chart as a joke, because, you know, they're more important, they're more likable. So we're just down there at the bottom. Our roles is, is so unique that we're like there and we're almost more interacting with the firefighters than the public because we're like, we're here to basically keep them safe and help them recognize where a person could be trapped, where the voids would be, where's the easy access points. So when we're looking at, we have a, on the state level, we have our own tablets that the state provides us to have Wi-Fi signals. The task force team actually brings their own cell phone tower. So we can actually plug up a cell phone tower in like five minutes and have the site completely wired back to satellite or cell phones if they had cell phone tower issues. We have tablets that are Wi-Fi enabled and cell phone enabled, so we can actually go there, take a picture, zoom in, draw on our little tablet, and then we can distribute it to the firefighters, or they can you know look at ours and they can see, take pictures. Our tablets are real-time with the North Carolina Emergency Management, so as we tag a building that this is damaged or there's a victim here, and we tag it as soon as we hit upload or push, they're seeing it come up on their screen, so they know real-time where we're at where people are at, what's been rescued, what's been cleared. So on a wide area search, you see, you know, engineers and firefighters working together, running down the streets, doing five minutes of building, trying to find out who needs rescue, who needs assistance, filling out our little tablets, hitting buttons, push, 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 push. And they're just popping up all North Carolina management. The North Carolina emergency management thinks engineers need to know this information. So we actually gave us dashboard access. So we actually can see that live data as well. And we're like, I don't really want to be playing with this information, but thank you for letting us have this. So we have like a view status now. So we can like, okay, so if a firefighter team in a wide area incident says, hey, this bridge needs to be looked at because we see cracks. Well, a firefighter's not going to know what to do with it. And you're not going to be able to call the DOT and say, I need a 
an engineer to come out here. But the first responders are available. So they're like, hey, Scott, you're going to go over there to look at this bridge. And so we're obviously, you know, I'm a bridge guy, our building guys. I do anything from rooftop units to eight-story, 10-story hospitals, wastewater treatment plants. So that's my normal day life. We have a uh, Cheryl Lynn's with us. She's did bridges for a living for a while. So we have a hotline to her say, Cheryl Lynn, uh, I got a bridge here. I got this crack. I'm concerned with what am I looking at? What am I missing? Or if it's a dirt issue, we have a collapse. We have a geotechnical on our team and we call up Donnie. And it's like, Donnie, I got a horizontal shear cracks in the dirt and I got a trench. Is this an issue? Do I, what do I do? I need to step, cut this back, you know? So as a team, as engineers, we have resources that we can quickly access. And when it becomes an emergency, we are basically all turn on our phones and we're all ready for whatever assistance we need from each other. So our communications is a little bit unique. In fact, at one point during Florence, the captain came up to me and goes, do you know where Task Force 3 is? I said, hold on. I called up, you know, the person engineer on Task Force 3 and said, they're over here in this school in this area. And he's like, great, because North Carolina Emergency Management lost them for a few minutes. You know, it's like, okay, well, they're, they're fine. Don't worry about it. You know, their engineers telling me where they're at. So we have the ability to, you know, communicate a little bit differently than the firefighters because we have a little bit like a horizontal train between groups. Yeah, I think that communication is actually pretty cool, especially with I think it's really interesting that you work with a team that has such a diverse amount of experience. You mentioned geotech. That was what I did in my past life, like working with trenches and worried about not just the structure, because that is important, obviously, when to protect it, but also the substructure was also very important. I think that's really interesting. When we set up, I was in the first wave of engineers to join the North Carolina Emergency Management. Donnie and Tom were the ones that basically said, hey, North Carolina Emergency Management, you need engineers. There's no way in the world you're going to find four engineers in every place you have a task force because Buncombe County at North Carolina is nowhere in the mountains and your closest city is Ashboro and they have like two engineering firms. So to find four engineers out there, you're not going to do it. He said, however, you can find 15, 20 in the state that are willing to do this. And it's four hours from state tip to state tip, almost any direction. So if you have a swap them in Charlotte, a swap them in Raleigh and Greensboro and over the coast and the mountains, you get a few, then it's easy enough to say, hey, Scott, you're in the middle of the state, head up to the mountains or, hey, you go to the coast. or So we can self-deploy, you know, deploy, catch up the task force as they're going to wherever they need to go uh, pretty quickly. Do you have any final advice for engineers working on large-scale disaster projects? Because I find this kind of a unique position for structural engineers. It has a lot of really, obviously disasters are not good things that happen, but it's a very exciting, think on your feet kind of position you're in, which I think is, you know, a lot of maybe younger engineers or even engineers, because you just mentioned you have to have five years experience, like medium tenured engineers who probably like the idea of thinking on their feet would be really interested in this. This is definitely not for, you know, everybody because when you think on your feet, you're really like, okay, I'm balling loads. You're like trying to figure out, okay, if that pile of rubble is 20 pounds a square foot, because that's, you know, roughly what we've been learning, that floor could take 100 pounds a square foot. Well, that's now, you know, so you're taking what you know in the building code. You're taking what you know what's out there in real life. And then you're trying to evaluate, is this a safe place? Is that beam overloaded? How badly is that beam? You know, is that shift point differently? When it comes to rigging in that, you're trying to figure out an unknown mass shape. You know, it's no longer a rectangle. It's some 
trapezoidal octagon three-dimensional shape that you're trying to figure out where's the center of gravity where's the big point to get that thing moved so it becomes a completely different you know you're definitely feeling like okay i'm eyeballing it should be approximately there and then you're going with it and you're spending you know you know, you're getting like five minutes at best to determine some of the stuff. They're not waiting for you to figure this out. You wait, take too long. They're going to try something and hopefully it worked where you're going to be a little bit better at it. So it's going to be a lot more pressure. We kind of joke that it's like hours and hours and hours of training and then five minutes of complete chaos and then back to hours and hours and hours of training. So it's not a, you know, I'm doing a disaster every day. I'm doing my normal nine to five job doing normal buildings and then going into the disaster zone. And you got to switch that hat to, I'm not worried about safety factors. I'm worried about how much I can avoid or go into that safety factor. Wood has a safety factor of five. I can push that wood now. I know I can push that wood. So that's where that experience comes into place is that I can go a lot further than that two by four says it can go. And that's where you start pushing that envelope a lot more for, you know, that 10 minute cycle to get somebody in and out quickly. I know for this stuff's uh just because you're the way you were saying it was kind of just uh, not the opposite intuition of engineers where we want to analyze it and well, let me make sure, give me a couple minutes to make sure and do my calcs right. It's like, no, it's, they're going, they're going with or without you because, uh, you know, someone's in need or, or something is an emergency. So yeah, that's really interesting. But this whole conversation was fascinating, Scott. I just want to thank you for taking your time to hop on and you know, talking about it because it is another aspect, like you were talking about the, the other programs that the second responders that engineers can volunteer to help out with in their own way. So thanks again. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please then please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 89, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at Engineering Management Institute dot org.